1: All Hit Radio!
0: Welcome to the X-Zone, a place where fact is fiction and fiction is reality. Now, here's your host, Rob McConnell. Welcome to the X-Zone, everyone. My name is Rob McConnell. And to all our affiliates now joining us here on the Talkstar Radio Network... Welcome, and uh, you know what? Over the last uh, hour, we were talking to Dale Walker, or Dalton Walker, about this rock that he found. And he, for some reasons, believes it has radioactive power. It can zap insects out of the sky. It emanates these strange rays of light. However, he sent it to NASA. He has sent it to all these... Government agencies, and, and the gist I get from the letters that we have posted at www.exone-radio.com forward slash dalton.htm is that he has been a pain to these people, and they've just gotten totally fed up and said, Hey, listen, we want nothing more to do with you. There's, we've said that there is nothing strange about your rock. And for him to take the word of a Canadian scientist, and I don't care if he's a Canadian scientist or a scientist from the Tibet, uh, from Tibet or anywhere else in the world, if he's to take the word of a scientist who has not examined the rock, or examined whatever it is he has, how can this person say with any professionalism or credibility that? the tests were not performed properly on this rock based on just the information that Dalton supplied him without him actually seeing the rock and making his own tests. As I said before we went to the break, I do not give this story any credibility. I gave Dalton the benefit of the doubt, and I will keep the information that he sent us posted at www.exone-radio.com forward slash... Dalton.htm for you, the ExONation Nation, to investigate. And if you have any, any other people that you would like to get them to check it out, please send me an email. Tell me what you think. My email address is very simple, exxon at talkstarradio.com. This hour, we're going to be talking about prison profiteers. Now, prison profiteers brings together a formidable array of lawyers, prisoners, ...journalists and advocates to provide a unique look at who exactly is benefiting from a mass imprisonment. Prison Profiteers takes a reader on an investigative journey behind the bars of our nation's prisons... ...to the front lines of its mass incarceration crisis and into the realm of its financially motivated private investors. The United States, with just 5% of the world's population, is responsible for incarcerating an astounding 25% of the world's inmates... Thanks to 30 years of mass incarceration, the number of people in state and federal penitentiaries has dramatically increased from an estimated 300,000 to 2.3 million. The numbers are shocking, yet while much research has has focused on social issues that surround incarceration in the U.S., until now, little attention has been given to the individuals and commercial enterprises that profit from prisons and their related services. When we come back from this two-minute commercial break, Paul Wright is going to be joining me. He is the founder and the editor of the Prison Legal News, an independent monthly magazine that reports on the criminal justice system, and he is also co-editor of Prison Nature. My name is Rob McConnell. This is The Exone, and we're talking about prison profiteers in this hour of The Exone live and around the world from our studios in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada, exclusively on the Talk Star Radio Network. Don't go away. Welcome back everyone. We're talking uh, this hour to Paul Wright. He is the co-editor of Prison Profiteers. It is um, published by New Press. And um, they've taken an investigative look at the physical consequences of mass incarceration, tracing more than, are you ready for this, $186 billion ...annual U.S. tax dollars intended for public goods to the various private prison companies, churches, investment banks, guard unions, and medical corporations... ...that benefit from the one out of every 137 Americans who are in prison today. Prison uh, Profiteers documents one of the biggest transfers of the wealth in in American history and how it operates in conjunction with mass imprisonment, the biggest and most thoroughly implemented social experiment in American history. And Paul Wright, welcome to the X-Zone.
2: Hi, Rob. Thank you for having me on your show.
0: I'll tell you something, Paul. When you look at the figures um, from 300,000 to 2.3 million inmates, and then you look at the amount of money, who says crime doesn't pay on both sides of the fence?
2: Well and that's exactly it is there's a lot of money to be made um, from I guess a better term for it would be the crime control industry, mm-hmm. and that's what we have here in the United States.
0: Paul, um, what does what does the term privatization mean in the um, prison system?
2: Basically what it means is um, turning over core government functions such as running of police uh, from policing functions. Mm-hmm. Uh, we see this in Iraq, for example, with the privatization of even military functions. But the core thing that we're looking at is the privatization of prison functions. And this includes, there's companies in the United States that do everything from build prisons to operate them uh, to more specialized things such as just providing health care services, commissary services, telephone services, and stuff like that. So pr- pretty much it's almost the divvying up of the governmental services pie uh, for a very handsome profit by private companies.
0: All right. So how did the move from pri- to uh, privatized prisons and prison industries arise?
2: Well, actually, the, like a lot of things, this isn't anything new. This is kind of almost a back-to-the-future thing. In the United States, up until the 1920s, a lot of prisons were privately operated or run, and we had what was called the convict lease system, whereby states would literally rent out or sell their prisoners to private companies uh, for their labor. In other words, the companies would pay the states, you know, $5, $10 a day uh, for the labor of the prisoners, and in exchange, they would get the prisoners' labor, and they were also responsible for the prisoners' well-being. Well, uh, and in fact, this was pretty widespread. The railroads and the road system in the southern United States after the Civil War was largely built using this type of prison slave labor. And the system largely ended in the 1920s because of the corruption, the brutality. Um, uh, Some reports from the time document that the average lifespan of a prisoner under the convict lease system was around five years, because basically for the the companies, there was no incentive to provide medical care or treat them well. And uh, I think the axiom from the time was, you know, if one dies, get another one. So prison privatization pretty much fell from favor after the 1920s, and after uh, during the Great Depression, there was certainly a lot more resistance from unions um, and businesses that had been um, uh, badly affected and impacted by these prison privatization practices. So, pretty much prison privatization was pretty much dead in the United States up until the early 1980s, when uh, a guy named Dr. Krantz... And another guy named Fred Beasley decided to found Corrections Corporation of America. And that was kind of almost a renaissance of the modern American uh, private prison movement.
0: Now, isn't Wackenhut somewhere in there as well?
2: Yes. uh, Wackenhut decided, after uh, seeing how much money uh, Corrections Corporation of America was making, Wackenhut decided to get into the prison business uh, in the late 80s. And they went through some corporate – they got bought out by a Danish group um, called uh, um, Group 4 in, let's see, I think it was around 1999 or 2000. Anyways, and, and part of what this Danish security company, what they did was they spun off the prison division of Wackenhut. So they only wanted the security guard portion of it. And so, what was Wackenhut Corrections was spun off into its own independent company. Today, they're called GEO Corporation, and they're based in Florida. But they're they're an independent company. They're no longer affiliated with Wackenhut.
0: Now, Paul, why is private prison necessarily a, a bad idea?
2: Well, I don't think it's necessarily so much that the idea is a bad one. It's it's like everything else. It's more in the implementation. Uh, it's how it's been implemented. And, and so far the track record of the private prison industry, uh, at least here in the United States, has been uh, it, it's been a pretty bad one. And for a variety of reasons, the the big claim, the central claim of the prison uh, privatization companies is that they can perform the functions cheaper than the government can. And it could well be maybe they can perform the uh, maybe they can lock people up cheaper than the government ha- can. But the thing is that the difference between uh, what they charge the government to um, lock people up and what it actually costs them to lock people up is known as their profit margin. So taxpayers don't actually realize a better, um, you know, they don't realize any type of savings or a better return on their money. And the interesting thing is the only countries in the world where prison privatization today is even really on the agenda pretty much the english speaking uh countries of the united states um, england and to a smaller extent australia new zealand south africa that dabbled with it canada made one recent experiment with it uh with a super jail and around toronto mm-hmm. and that pretty much ended in failure and the thing is is that in Many parts of the world, the prison privatization issue, is not seen as a human rights issue. It's seen as a labor issue. And one of the reasons for this is that where the private prison companies really make their money is by shortchanging the staff. They understaff their prisons, which leads to a lot of safety issues. You have um, prisoners and staff who wind up getting uh, beaten, raped, killed, whatever. There's escapes. There's riots. And it's all due to understaffing. And the other thing is that they don't pay their staff very well. Um, To give you an example, a prison guard um, in a state like Connecticut uh, might start out at $50,000 a year. Prison guards in California are starting out at around $50,000 a year. Um, Prison employees who are working for private prison companies, on the other hand, are starting out at $8, $8.50, $9 an hour. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, and it's basically, okay, you can work at Walmart or you can work for Corrections Corporation of America. And some of the things they also share is that, like the Walmart employees, but unlike their state um, or federal prison guard um, counterparts, the guards that are working for CCA and GEO and these other companies, they're not getting a pension plan, they're not getting health care benefits. And basically these are some pretty core Um, core issues and that's why um, these private prison companies are able to uh, basically make a lot of money and they claim they can run their operations cheaper than the government can but basically they just pocket the difference and that's how they make their money
0: what kind of prison guard can you get for eight dollars an hour though
2: Well, that's part of the problem, is even when you can get them, you can't keep them. And that's why um, training and turnover are extremely high in private prisons. It's also one of the reasons that here in the United States, the private prison industry is pretty much concentrated south of the Mason-Dixon line in the so-called right-to-work states. These are states where the union movement is extremely weak. Um, As a practical matter, none of the private prison companies employ unionized prison guards for that very reason. So they're union busters, they don't, um, any efforts at organizing by prison guards is pretty much met with, um, you know, pretty fierce um, union busting tactics. And, you know, that is basically, you the people they wind up hiring are people who generally don't have much else going for them as far as other options. And as soon as a better job comes along, they're out of there.
0: But don't we owe it to the member of uh, the the, uh, the members of the prison community that that society has placed into the custody of these of these prison, whether they're run by the federal government or the state government or by pro- the private sector, to ensure that the people who are charged with taking care of them, you know, actually fit the bill, and it shouldn't be a matter of dollars and cents.
2: Yes, absolutely, and that would, and it, I think it also comes down to you know more fundamental questions of human rights. I mean, we we can save for another day the discussion of you know who should be going to prison. Sure. Uh, the United, the fact that the United States has some of the harshest um, sentencing practices and policies in the world. You know, the fact that they lock up uh, so many mentally ill people and uh, nonviolent uh, drug offenders and stuff like that. But let's just focus on the fact that okay, let's take it as a given that so many people are going to prison and what's going to happen with them while they're there. And, you know, a core concern, I think, for everyone uh, should be if you're going to send people to prison by the time they get out, they shouldn't be worse uh, when they get out than they were when they went in. And a lot of that is entails, you know, providing some type of resources. You know, we know, for example, in the United States that statistically, uh, depending on the state, 60-80% of prisoners are functionally illiterate. So it kind of makes sense. Well, let's Give them some functional literacy class. Yes, we know exactly. that 85% of prisoners have substance abuse problems with drugs or alcohol or both. It makes sense, hey, let's give them some substance abuse treatment try to get them off drugs, which more than likely is what led to their coming to prison in the first place. And these, and these are all, I think, pretty common sense things. I don't think too many people are going to disagree with that, but... Then it comes down to the thing, well, you know what? It costs money. It costs money to hire teachers. It costs money to buy some school books. And there
0: there goes the profit margin.
2: And there goes the profit margin. All right.
0: Stand by, Paul. You and I have to take a news break at the bottom of the hour. Paul Wright is our special guest, Exonation. He is the co-editor of Prison Profiteers. It's published by New Press. And when we come back from this commercial break... More with Paul Wright. We're going to be talking about prison labor and other topics of interest as the Exxon continues live and around the world from our studios in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada, exclusively right here on the Talkstar Radio Network. And still to come tonight, psychic readings by the one and only Dougal Fraser. All this and more coming up. Don't go away. Did you know that when you're on the road with limited data or Wi Fi, you can still listen to the X zone Radio Show with Rob McConnell, The Science of Magic with Gwilda Wiaka, X 1, Dimension X? Remember, 213-401-0080 for the best of the paranormal, parapsychology, and sci-fi radio programming anywhere, 24-7-365. All right, as our special guest. We're talking about prison profiteers. And uh, if you'd like to visit their website, it's www.prisonlegalnews.org. That's www.prisonlegalnews.org. And this segment of the x is being brought to you by Dita Wegman, who is the author of Nostradamus Dreams Interpretation Guide, Real Dreams Predicting for Your Future, The Power of the Stars, How They Move Us Humans. Visit her website at www.nostradamusdreams.com. Paul, aren't there positive aspects to prison labor? Um...
2: Well, I'm not sure. Like what? I mean, there's a lot of those things that their proponents say that are positive mm-hmm. about it, but I think that when you subject them to critical examination, and you and you know you get past the suspension of disbelief, they tend not to pan out.
0: Well, well, for example, you know, keeping idle hands busy, um, it gives prisoners a, a skill for post-prison life, doesn't it? Plus, it doesn't it raise their dollar value when they hit back uh, hit the streets back in society, so they don't have to look at crime in order to. Um, Exist?
2: Well, you know, that's I think that's one of the things that, you know, on paper it sounds good, but the reality is that most of the jobs that are being done in prisons are uh they tend to be very low tech, uh they tend to be low tech, um, very labor intensive manual, low skill labor, stuff that in general is these jobs have long been exported to third world sweatshops outside of the United States or stuff that if it's being done in the United States, well, it's being done by prisoners or it's being done by illegal immigrants. You know, there's really not a lot of um, real job skill training going on here. Um, Some of the other issues that have come up is that um, by using prisoners in these jobs, it depresses wages on the outside for the non-prisoners that are doing these jobs. So literally by the time guys get out, the jobs are no longer there, or is, or is something that you can't sustain a family on.
0: Hmm. So, in prison, when a prisoner works, does he get paid, or is he compensated for the work that he does, or is this part of the his um, his payback to society?
2: Well, it depends. Virtually every state in the country has, in the United States, has some type of law or statute requiring prisoners to work. And in some states like Texas, Florida, uh, Mississippi, and Arkansas, for example, prisoners literally are slaves of the state. They get paid nothing. You have prisoners that are working in the fields. They may be working in industrial-type operations, and they get paid absolutely nothing for their labor. And, And this goes back to kind of a bigger thing here in the United States, is a lot of people think that the United States abolished slavery at the end of the Civil War. Well, the United States didn't abolish slavery. In fact, it enshrined it in the 13th Amendment, which limited slavery to people that had been convicted of a crime. And this has led several courts, whenever prisoners have gone to court, seeking to be paid for their labor or seeking a minimum wage to say, basically, prisoners are the slaves of the state. They have no right, no entitlement to any type of pay or anything like that. Um, And so that's kind of on... The one hand, the other thing is, is that to the extent that prisoners are being paid for their work, in most states, uh, prisoners are paid literally, the states that do pay the prisoners to work, they're paid literally pennies. And we document some of this in prison profiteers where, for example, prisoners that are being employed by Pride, that's a prison industries uh, company in Florida, they're being paid 20, 30, 40 cents an hour. On the other hand, the prison officials who run these uh, corporations, these prison industries, are making a quarter million dollars a year in salary. So, in some respects, you could say that, yes, that replicates the free world workforce. Uh, but the other, the bigger thing, though, is that prison slave labor, it's not economically feasible. The companies that set up shop um, using prison, uh, prison slave labor, even with all the subsidies they get from the government, which typically will include everything from uh, not having to pay rent, they've got a pretty docile uh workforce it's forbidden to strike or organize, uh, they don't have to pay uh, health benefits, they don't have to pay workmen's compensation, they don't have to get insurance. Even with all these benefits, they tend not to be very economically successful. They, they tend not to do very well in the marketplace.
0: So, taking all this into consideration, is there an economic impact of prison... Uh, of the prisons in uh, major major cities, and as well as in the uh, rural communities, or is or the, or is the Im- the economic imprint and impact only on the smaller communities?
2: Uh, I'd say that basically the the impact of prison slave labor isn't so much on communities as it is on industries, and this comes up where, for example, uh, the industrial furniture industry. Uh, for years, uh, for the last ten or twelve years, they've been some of the most uh, vocal and vigorous critics of prison slave labor here in the United States, and specifically they've targeted uh, Unicor, uh, which is the federal prison industries. And some of the stuff that they've gone after Unicor for is that when you've got state-run prison industries, it's not it's not just so much that um, you've got companies that are paying prisoners, um, you know, pennies an hour to work um, but the, the other big thing is that there's there's also laws on the books that require government agencies to purchase um, a lot of goods from prison industries before they can turn to private suppliers and this has long been a bone of contention for a lot of industries where you've got the furniture industry saying hey we can pay people at least the minimum wage or a little bit more and benefits and workman's comp, and we can sell furniture to the government for less money than prison industries can when they pay these guys uh, 20 cents an hour. And they've um, lobbied very heavily seeking to end these uh, mandatory uh, supplier contracts and requirements uh, that are imposed on a lot of government agencies. And one of their arguments is that the the furniture industry in particular has been heavily hit by um, uh, by the prison uh, sourcing requirements, as well as uh, the job flight to to Asia, especially to China, where a lot of U.S. furniture is now made in.
0: How can we turn this around? How can we make it more fair? And where does all this money go?
2: Well, you know, as far as talking about the money, that's that's a pretty good question. In some respects, I I think you can call prison profiteers a follow-the-money book. And when you look at the fact that the United States, um, just on operating costs, just for prisons, spends around eighty billion dollars a year to run prisons, and and to put this into some perspective, California alone spends around eight billion dollars a year on its prison system. Wow. Um, You know, we're talking a lot of money, and where it's going is you've got two point three million people locked up, and you've got around eight hundred, nine hundred thousand people that are directly employed. By these prisons and jails, this is everything from the prison and jail guards to the nurses, the secretaries, the bureaucrats um, that run them, the prison officials that that manage them. And these are just the people that are directly employed by, um, um, you know, directly employed by the prisons and jails to provide the to actually operate them and oversee their operation. If you start talking about the people that. Um, are doing kind of the more peripheral or, you know, the more secondary stuff, Mm -hmm. the architects that build them, the, um, uh, you know, the doctors that work in the prisons, um, the people that make the razor wire, the people that make the locks, the people that make the alarm systems, and all this, that's where these billions and billions of dollars are going. And part of the problem is that whenever there's been any attempt at downsizing uh, prison populations, all these people that have vested financial interests, they immediately come out saying, hey, you can't mess with our livelihood on this. Um, right before he left office, um, uh, Governor Elliot Spitzer in New York um, was in the midst. He floated a proposal saying, hey, we can close some of these older prisons in New York State, and we can shut them down, and um, this will save us some money. And immediately you've got the prison guards, their union, and you've got legislators where these prisons are located in all coming out saying, hey, you can't close these prisons. Our jobs depend on it. And what we've seen in the United States in in the last 25, 30 years is the use of prisons as uh, tools of economic development, where literally it's, uh, you know, some commentators have called it, uh, you know, government welfare for poor rural white communities, because that's where most prisons have been built in the United States in the last uh, couple decades. And no one wants to see that those sources of money drying up. Prisons are seen as, uh, by some segments of society, the people that are benefiting from them. They're seen as a great thing, and, you know, they don't want to lock up less people. They want to lock up more people.
0: All right, so we, we've got the, you know, we've got the the privatization happening now. What do the guard unions have to say, and the other unions that are involved in the federal, state, and uh, municipal systems outside of the private sectors?
2: the The uh, prison guard unions, to their credit, have been very good on the issue of um, of prison privatization, and pretty much and across the board, they strongly oppose prison privatization because. They basically, you know, quite accurately see it as a threat to their direct economic mm-hmm. interest. Uh, and it doesn't take, um, you know, a rocket scientist to realize that, you know, if you're working uh, for the government and as a prison guard and you're making $40,000 a year and after a few years you'll be making fifty, fifty-five thousand dollars $55,000 and you've got benefits, you've got uh, good health care benefits, you've got a pension plan where you can retire after 30 years, that's pretty good and then you look across the street where there's a privately run prison and guards are starting out there at eight or nine dollars an hour they have no benefits they have no pension plan and stuff like that and it's you know that real race to the bottom is pretty apparent that's why uh... the guard unions have been pretty consistent about opposing uh... prison privatization and this is also why i mentioned earlier that the private prison industry is concentrated in the southern United States, where typically either there is no union movement or the unions are very weak. Uh, there's virtually no private prisons in any of the northern states of the United States, where there are strong unions. And in California, the only uh, there's only a couple of private prisons, and basically they operate um, they only house federal prisoners for the federal government. They aren't they aren't housing any state or uh, local prisoners.
0: Have there been any studies done to see who puts out a better prisoner when it comes time to releasing them back into society, the the private, or the federal?
2: Well, one of the studies that was done recently uh, was on Hawaiian prisoners. Hawaii has a serious um, overcrowding crisis. They mm-hmm. lock up a bunch of people, mostly uh, drug offenders, and they it's uh, land is at a premium in Hawaii. So they haven't been able to build any new prisons there, but what they found is they can send them to Corrections Corporation of America-run prisons in Oklahoma and Arizona and these other places for a fraction of what it would cost to keep people locked up in Hawaii. And um, so they've got a couple thousand Hawaiian prisoners in Oklahoma and Arizona, which is literally thousands and thousands and thousands of miles away from their homes or families and their support networks. And the study they did is that everyone, every, they've literally, CCA um, is boasting a 100% recidivism rate for Hawaiian prisoners sent to the mainland and then released and sent back to the Hawaiian Islands within three years, which is pretty impressive. (laughs) Um, And that's kind of the, um, I mean, that's a very extreme example. But Pretty much, um, the, re- the recidivism rates, unfortunately, are very high, and they're driven by a lot of the same reasons. Is just as um, just as the government prisons aren't providing uh, substance abuse treatment, literacy treatment, and stuff like that, the private prisons tend not to be doing it either.
0: So, no. So, the benefit is not being passed on to the inmate.
2: No, there's absolutely no benefit, and that's one of the things that what we see happening a lot with um, what we see happening a lot with uh, the private prison industry is some of the other places where they shortchange prisoners. Um, is the biggest thing is on the staffing, but then everything mm-hmm. else is you know whether it's the food, the uniforms, the clothing, the hygiene items, uh, the medical care. It just, you know, the list just goes on. It's pretty much very bottom line driven. Anything, that, any place they can save a nickel, um, that's what they're doing. And this is in the context that, you know, the the executives of these companies. I mean, uh, George Zoli, he's the um, he's the CEO and president of uh, Geo Corporation. I mean, the guards that work for him might be starting out at eight fifty an hour. But he's making millions of dollars a year, and so it goes for the rest of the top-tier executives in the private prison industry. They're, they're making huge amounts of money. All
0: right, and, Paul, but, please stand by. We've got to take our final break for this hour. Paul Wright is our special guest, www.prisonlegalnews.com. We're talking about the book that he co-edited, Prison Profiteers. We'll be back on the other side of this commercial set as the Exxon continues right here on the Talk Star Radio Network.
1: xzbn.net. Officers
0: on the scene. Hi, I'm Larry Lawson, host of Paranormal Stakeout. With over 36 years in law enforcement, I've learned a few things. The most important is the proper gathering and preservation of evidence is vital to putting the bad guy behind bars. What do you think is going to happen with this private uh, profit, privateers or prison profiteers? Uh, do you think that uh, it's going to go back to the federal system or that more and more is going to be given over to uh, the private sector?
2: Well, what's actually happened, um, the private prison industry, they tried to basically mount a big, uh, when they first started out, they were focused on minimum security prisoners and kind of cherry-picking the crop of well-behaved, healthy um, prisoners and but that's not where the real um, that isn't where the real numbers are in the American prison system so they start expanding into medium security prisoners and that's pretty much where they've run into their big problems of escapes killings riots everything else so they've taken some real black eyes with that and at this point the private prison industry has kind of stabilized it around they hold around seven percent of american prisoners and that's pretty much where they're at I, I don't really think they're going to be growing too much more beyond that where they've been growing massively though mm-hmm. and basically it, it's amounted to almost a federal government bailout of the private prison industry which was pretty much tanking in the early part of uh this decade uh due to mismanagement um bad decisions and, and um uh, riots and stuff like that, is the illegal immigration market. Basically, uh, the number of people that the U.S. government is locking up uh, for immigration violations is increasing exponentially. Right now, there's around 27, 30,000 people locked up uh, for immigration violations, uh, people in the various stages of the deportation process, and the government uh, through the Department of Homeland Security and ICE. Uh, the Immigrations and Customs Enforcement branch, they're dramatically increasing the number of prison cells they're going to have for immigration uh, detention. And all this expansion is pretty much being done by the private prison industry. And that's been a huge boon to them. And as far as the population to manage, it tends to be a lot easier um, it tends to be a lot easier, more docile population than convicted prisoners. Um, and they seem to be latching onto it. In fact, some of the big things that's gotten some uh, negative press recently is the Hutto uh, facility in Texas, that's run by Corrections Corporation of America, where they lock up entire immigrant families. Uh, parents with their children are locked up. It's a, it's a medium security prison that's been converted to immigration detention. They call it a family facility, but you know you got babies in cells, uh, babies in cribs, in uh, prison cells and this has been a huge boon uh, to CCA and the other companies. I I think that's one of the trends that's going to keep continuing to expand.
0: Paul, you and I have to stay so long for tonight, but I'd love to have you back in the future to uh, continue this conversation.
2: Okay. Anytime you're interested in criminal justice issues in the United States, feel free to call on me.
0: Thanks very much, Paul, and uh, continued success in bringing all this uh, information to the light so that the citizens know what's going on. Paul Wright, he is the co-editor of Prison Profiteers, www.prisonlegalnews.org. When we come back from the news at the top of the hour, Dougal Fraser will be with us, doing psychic readings for one and all who give us a call at one 877 My name's Rob McConnell, this is the X-One on the Talk Star Radio Network. Don't go...